Good morning. I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, November 24th. In today's news, President-elect Joe Biden names a Latino immigrant as Homeland Security Secretary and will pick the first female Treasury Secretary. 86,000 COVID patients are hospitalized in America, and House Democrats reckon with their diminished majority. But first, the big idea. President Trump effectively surrendered his three-week protest of the election results on Monday night by giving the green light for the government's official transition process to begin. Though procedural in nature, Trump's acceptance of the General Services Administration doing what has historically been routine amounts to a dramatic capitulation and caps an extraordinary 16-day standoff since Biden was declared the winner on November 7th. By continuing to subvert the vote and delay the transition, Trump recognized that he risked becoming isolated within his own party. On Monday, the Michigan Board of State Canvassers certified Biden's win there, while earlier in the day, more than 100 CEOs and dozens of Republican national security veterans urged Trump to accept the results because they said refusing to do so was endangering our security and economy while undermining the pandemic response. Trump yielded, naturally, with a tweet, saying he had agreed to support the Biden transition, quote, in the best interest of our country. Yet he also vowed to continue his push to overturn the results, adding, quote, our case strongly continues. We will keep up the good fight, and I believe we will prevail. A senior Trump campaign advisor said candidly that the tweet should be read as a concession, even though you'll never expect to hear Trump say that word. This advisor added, quote, it's as close to a concession as you will probably get. Josh Dossie, Tom Hamburger, Amy Gardner, and Phil Rucker report that looking to bring some sense of closure, some of Trump's advisors are encouraging him to deliver a speech to the nation in which he doesn't concede but talks about his accomplishments in office and commits to peacefully leave the White House. Trump was angry yesterday about the whole situation, and he yelled at his political team during a conference call. He was particularly irate over comments made by Blackstone chairman Steve Schwartzman, one of his closest allies in the business community. Schwartzman was quoted saying Biden's victory is very certain and the country needs to move on. White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows told other staff last night that it is time for them to begin coordinating with their counterparts from Biden's team. Emily Murphy, the head of the GSA, approved the transition in an unusually personal two-page letter to Biden Day after day, as her boss has tried to subvert the results with false claims of fraud, the embattled head of that agency has refused to sign a piece of paper ascertaining that Biden has won. Trump claimed Monday that he had recommended Murphy sign that letter. She insisted in a letter to Biden that she had acted on her own and was never told what to do by anyone at the White House. So at least one of them is not telling the truth. If you needed another indication that the Trump presidency really, truly is coming to an end, here's another proof point for you. Secret Service agents in Trump's personal detail have been asked if they are willing to permanently relocate to West Palm Beach come January 20th. ABC reports that the Secret Service's Miami field office has also begun looking at physical reinforcements for Mar-a-Lago, where Trump plans to live full-time after moving out of the White House. Also, Come January 21st, the New York Police Department is planning to work with the Secret Service to reduce the law enforcement footprint around Trump Tower in Manhattan, since it will no longer be designated as his primary residence. 
The results of that for New Yorkers will be a freer flow of traffic along Fifth Avenue. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Tuesday. Number one, Joe Biden has picked Alejandro Mayorkas to lead the Department of Homeland Security, making him, if confirmed, the first immigrant and first Latino to head an agency that oversees immigration laws and border control. DHS became a flashpoint in the Trump era because it was openly hostile to immigrants, especially those seeking refuge here. Images of little kids in cages will forever be linked to Trump's name in the history books. Years later, at least 545 kids remain in U.S. government care because the Trump team has failed to locate the parents they took them away from, who were deported back to their countries of origin. Mayorkas was the architect in the Obama administration of a program to protect undocumented immigrants brought to the U.S., the initiative known as DACA. Biden yesterday also named former Deputy CIA Director Avril Haines to be the Director of National Intelligence. She'll be the first woman to hold that post. Separately, Biden is expected to soon name former Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen to be his Treasury Secretary. If confirmed, she would be the first woman to hold that position, which was first occupied by Alexander Hamilton under George Washington. Unlike Trump, who favored outsiders, or Barack Obama, who often turned to up-and-coming political stars, Biden's nominations so far are heavy on technocratic careerists, known more for competence than sparkle. Biden's also naming John Kerry to be his climate change czar. That position, which will come with the rank of ambassador, includes a seat on the National Security Council, putting him in the room with key decision makers amid foreign policy deliberations. It's a signal that Biden intends to elevate climate change as an issue after four years of a president who's called it a hoax. Moreover, it's a recognition that a warming climate creates palpable national security challenges for our country. Number two, in 23 states right now, the average number of coronavirus hospitalizations has risen by at least 20% week over week. Our death toll is set to keep growing. The third wave of coronavirus cases that took off in September has seen cases rise faster and faster ever since. The second wave, which peaked in July, was significantly smaller, but it followed the same pattern. Cases rose first, then hospitalizations, and then deaths. The second wave began in mid-June when cases began to rise a few weeks after Memorial Day. Ten days after that, hospitalization numbers started to go up, followed by two weeks after that, a rise in deaths. The data from the beginning of the third wave shows a similar trend so far. Buoyed by promising results from major clinical trials of three coronavirus vaccines, public health officials are preparing for the daunting task ahead of delivering those shots to tens of millions of Americans. Lena Sun and Francis Stead Sellers report that the vaccines need to be distributed across 50 states plus U.S. territories that have different demographics and shifting needs. The leading products must be stored at different temperatures, and they have different minimum orders, with each requiring at least two shots, or they all require two shots. But each of the three different vaccines, Moderna, Pfizer, and AstraZeneca, have different schedules for when the optimal time is to get the second shot. Complicating matters more is that a final decision on who's eligible to get the early doses must wait for a federal advisory group's recommendations. But that can't happen until regulators have authorized the new vaccines. And once set in motion, the distribution, from loading dock to upper arm, has to be accomplished equitably and with as few handoffs as possible because, remember, this is all being done amid a pandemic. The stakes are enormous. And sadly, a new survey from the COVID Collaborative highlights a trust gap in the African-American and Latino communities. Only 14% of black people trust that a vaccine will be safe. 
Among Latinos, only 34% trusted safety. Majorities of white people trust the vaccine will be safe. Getting coronavirus vaccines to communities of color is especially important because they're the ones who have been disproportionately hit. They're service workers, they're frontline workers. They haven't been able to work from home at the same rates. So they've borne the burden of this pandemic. For many African-Americans, the lack of trust in the vaccine is rooted in a dark history of exploitation. Number three, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, during his two decades now as a senior Democratic vote counter, has often preached to his fractious caucus about what he calls the psychology of consensus. But come January, the congressman from Maryland and senior Democratic leaders might need a lot more than the power of positive thinking. Facing the tightest House majority in two decades, they are already sketching out ways to manage a legislature that will spend two years on a razor's edge. Following unexpected setbacks on Election Day, Democrats could end up holding as few as 222 seats when the new Congress convenes in January. That number is just a handful of seats over the majority threshold of 218, and it will drop further depending on how many people from Congress Biden appoints to his cabinet. Congressman Cedric Richmond, a Democrat from Louisiana, has already announced plans to resign to join the Biden administration as a senior advisor, for example. Pushing any sort of partisan measure through the House is going to require near unanimity inside the Democratic Party, forcing careful negotiations with various factions and perhaps fewer aspirational messaging bills to set out Democratic ideals but that everyone knows are never going to become law. Meanwhile, an emboldened Republican minority will look to wreak havoc and magnify internal disputes ahead of the 2022 midterms. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy from California has already signaled that he plans to use various procedural feints to frustrate Democrats. Congressman Jim Banks, a Republican from Indiana, the incoming chairman of the Conservative Study Committee, said last week that he expects a constant food fight between Democratic leaders and the hard-left squad that will create gridlock and help them pick up more seats in 2022. Republican leaders are also eager to keep using something called the motion to recommit. It's a final amendment that's offered by the minority party just before the passage of a bill. They're going to use the motion to recommit to drive wedges in the Democratic caucus whenever possible. That success and the steady transformation of the motion into a political cudgel has prompted many Democrats to call for its modification or abolition. Hoyer is now among them. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democrat from New York, acknowledged that liberal activists tend to bristle at the suggestion that the burden should be on them to rein in their ambitions. But she said in an interview with our Mike DeBonis that there's a realization right now inside the left part of the caucus that they're going to all have to work together. Multiple Democrats up and down the ranks and across the ideological spectrum say they're counting on Biden to be a unifying force who can hold everyone together under trying circumstances. Hoyer predicted that the thin margin Democrats have will generate an esprit de corps that binds moderates and liberals together. As Steny put it yesterday, there's an awareness now that they're all in a foxhole together, that there's not many of them, and that they're under assault, and they have to have each other's backs. We'll see if that happens. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, November 24th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.